I am Cree Ojibwe and Métis from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, which is in Treaty 6 territory. But I'd like to acknowledge the land upon which we stand, because if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going. This is the home of the Treaty 7 people, the Nitsitapi, or Blackfoot, of Siksika, Gainai, and Pagani, the Beaver people of Tsutsina, and the Stony Nakoda of Morley, which includes Chiniki, Bears Paw, and Wesley First Nations. We also acknowledge Métis Region 3, for we are walking in their footsteps. You are tuned into a new episode of Writer's Block on CJSW. CJSW's Writer's Block broadcasts out of the University of Calgary campus radio station at CJSW 90.9 FM, located on Treaty 7 territory. Writer's Block airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. If you ever miss our show live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com slash writers dash block. This episode of Writer's Block is brought to you by a student-driven collective. We'll be featuring inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and creative segments. Our September episode features interviews with Shelley Youngblood, Kai Chang Tom, and the UCalgary-based Espresso Poetry Collective. We also have a special fiction reading from UCalgary alumna Joanne Fung of her short story, Clutch. Let's get started. So begin by introducing yourself and telling us about your new children's book. Yeah, um, well, my name is Kai Cheng Tom, and I am an author and a consultant um, and performer based in Toronto, also known as Toronto. Um, and I write a lot of different kinds of books. I've written a young adult novel, a book of essays, a collection of poetry, um, and of course, a couple children's books. My latest children's book is called For Laika, The Dog Who Learned the Names of the Stars. And I'm really excited about this book for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that it's about Laika. So uh, Laika is the first uh, mammal to orbit the Earth. She was a dog, a real dog, who uh, flew up into the atmosphere in the Russian satellite called Sputnik 2 and uh, really made history uh, by circling the planet. But also, unfortunately, uh, because it was the first time and it was the space race, uh, Laika didn't survive any. And yeah. And when I learned about this story as a child, it stayed with me forever. I really uh, thought about Laika a lot. I remembered her because she did something that was so important. But also, um, you know, I, I really thought about like it was complicated. Like, why did why did humans decide to treat the animal like that? And so this book is about Laika. It tells the story from her perspective. And it is also um, about how do we as human beings want to treat animals um, uh, when we have all these other concerns going on? It's still important to remember our relationship to other kinds of creatures. What has your relationship with other creatures been like over the years? 
That's a great question. I think it's been complicated, like like with uh, many human beings. But so I I'm uh, I've been a lover of pets. I don't have any, unfortunately, right now because I live in a in an apartment in Toronto. I'm not really allowed to. But um, when I was a kid, um, my parents had um, many pets. They raised fish and birds. And then when we were uh, little kids, my sister and I, we had a few rabbits, guinea pigs. Um, we always loved dogs. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I would say I was deeply in love with uh, animals. And also, though, of course, as a human um, who was raised uh, eating meat, I also eat animals. And so I think about that all the time, like how... Uh, like what, what, what is, um, how can I be, uh, like a human being who loves animals while also, you know, I, I eat some animals and uh, we wear some animals. So how can we, how can we treat animals better while still also, um, like doing the things that we as humans need to do? I grew up learning to use as much of the animal as possible. So to not to waste the food. I absolutely agree. So, of course, some people would say, well, just don't consume animals, right? And there are lots of people who are uh, vegans and vegetarians. And I think that's, you know, wonderful for, for folks who, you know, that, that works for. But, of course, there are many um, cultural and health reasons that people, that uh, other people might need to consume animals. But um, as you were saying, like not being wasteful and consuming and using the entire animal and not in a wasteful way is, is so important. And I think a part of that too is um, being really respectful uh, of the animal. Um, because we can, you know, eat meat or we can consume animals for other reasons, but that doesn't mean we have to treat them badly. And unfortunately, you know, so many scientific and farming practices today are very cruel, unnecessarily so. Um, and, and that's something that, uh, that really hurts my heart to, today um, and is a big part of this book as well, right? Because what happened with Laika is that she was part of a scientific experiment. Um, and everyone said that, you know, what the newspapers at the time were like, oh, Laika, so interesting. She's a hero. But, you know, did we really need to use animals that way for science? I'm not sure. Did we really need to have a space race at all? I'm not sure. And it's it's pretty interesting uh, to be thinking about that now because, of course, there's a there's a second space race happening, but it's not between countries. It's between billionaires, you know. So I, I just think that's um, I, I think it's really fascinating and it sort of all ties together for me. So Laika was an actual animal that went to space. Yes. Yeah. She was a real living, breathing animal. And, and the part of that story that really affected me. Um, and this is all in the book as well, but in a bit more of like a fairy tale format. Um, but the real facts um, are that Laika was an orphan dog um, living in the streets of Moscow, Russia. And uh, like all the other dogs who were collected for the Soviet experiments, um, she was just sort of rounded up. You know, <laughs> they took the, the, the stray dogs and, and brought them into the lab for experiments. And she was the one who was considered the most fit to go to space because she was very calm. And um, the lead scientist, um, Vladimir Yazdowski, who also kind of appears in the book, um, he took Laika home with him the night before the launch of the rocket, the Sputnik 2. 
and he uh, made her a stake and she played with his children and then he took her back and you know put her on the rocket um and then he later wrote uh, or maybe yeah he later wrote that um that was one of the worst things that he had had to do um, as a scientist was, uh, was was carry out this experiment. He felt it was wrong. And I thought that was so human. Um, and it really, it, it stayed with me um, that we know uh, that our relationships with animals um, is, is, is not right always. But we keep going because of all of the forces around us. And what would happen if we, if we, if we pushed back? I mean, you know, what would happen if we took a moment to try and change the way things were? Um, this is a really important question for me. What is the writing process like for creating a children's book? I'm so glad you asked, Jean. Um, the writing process is quite different from writing almost anything else because when uh, you are writing an, a book for adults um, or teenagers, um, you have a lot of room for prose and many words and you're kind of describing things in detail and and all of the action um, really relies on your use of language. But when you write a picture book, for children, there are two things that I find very challenging. And the first one is um, most children's books are under a thousand words and preferably they're like under 500. Um, and I really struggled with that. Um, and so much of the action is it happens in the pictures. So you have to weave your words together with the work of the illustrator. And my illustrator, um, Kai Yunqing, happens to be really talented and also a best friend of mine. And so we got to work together very closely, but it was still quite hard, I found, kind of boiling that whole story down into under a thousand words and um, making sure that everything matched up with the pictures and, um, like trying to get in all of the history and the emotions and the facts into, you know, that into, into a format that a child, um, you know, at the age of four or five could um, read and not, uh, you know, not lose interest or not lose attention. And also something that was interesting for parents. So that's the part that was first part that was hard. The second part that's hard for me is I like to write books for children that are about things that are complicated. Obviously it's not very, um, it doesn't have a happy ending so much this story. Although I like to think that the ending of my book is somewhat happy. You'll have to read it to find out how, but um, I like to write about things that are a bit complicated. My first children's book was about bullying and um, discrimination. Um, and my second children's book is about this, you know, about this complicated science experiment. And I, I think that's so important because a lot of people will say, oh, children should only have simple books that only talk about happy things. And for sure, I think children need books that reflect a happy world that they could imagine. But children don't live in a world that is only happy. Children also live in a world that is sad, that is scary, uh, you know, that is strange, that doesn't make sense, just like us adults. And so I think that a children's book um, needs to be able to show children how to be um, in a complicated world while also still knowing who they are and, you know, feeling a sense of trust in, um, in people who can be trusted. So, so that part was, was, was challenging for me. How do I write a story about a dog who goes to space and then doesn't survive, but write it in a way that isn't, um, overwhelming or, um, you know, uh, 
too harsh for children. And I don't want to underestimate children either. My fav- One of my favorite children's books when I was a kid was Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. Um, and if anyone um, you know, listening remembers that, uh, doesn't remember that, the Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes is a story, again, of a real uh of, of, of a real being, a real little girl in this case, who was born after the atom bomb of Hiroshima and atom bombing of Hiroshima in World War II. And Sadako uh, had leukemia poisoning, and the leukemia um, had like a radiation poisoning um, and cancer, and it emerged when she was about 10. And she tried to fold a thousand paper cranes so she could wish to live. And this became really famous story throughout the world. It became a children's book. And when I read that book as a child, it really showed me um, like something important about the world. It made me want to work for peace and for change. And so this is why I think it's important to write books that are challenging for young people, but also in a way that is not, um, that doesn't just say the world is terrible and we shouldn't do anything about it. I want to write a book that is complicated, but also hopeful. Thanks for talking with me. That was my interview with Kai Chang Tom about her new children's book for Laika, the dog who learned to name the stars. CJSW, no adverbs allowed. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. So, hi everybody, my name is Maddie Robinson, and today we're interviewing Kimberly Jones and Linda Hatfield about their new poetry anthology, Uncommon Grounds. It's great to chat with you guys today. Uh, I was wondering if you'd like to introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit more about yourselves in this anthology. Hi, Maddie. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. I'm Kimberly Jones, and I'm one of the poets uh, from the Uncommon Grounds anthology. We're the Espresso Poetry Collective. There are six of us. Um, In my spare time, when I'm not writing poetry, I also teach in the journalism program at SAIT as an adjunct instructor. Uh, I teach public relations, writing and design there. I teach a couple of writing classes to another college, with another college. And I am in public relations and have been for a really long time. So writing poetry is one of the ways that I can escape that world of uh, everyday public relations exercises. I'm happy to be here. I'm Linda Hatfield. Thanks for having us on your program. I used to be a junior high social studies, language arts and French teacher Uh, for 31 years. I retired about six years ago, and ever since then, I've been very involved in writing. Um, Poetry is my first love in writing, but I'm also in the process of penning a novel. So that was a project I'd had on my mind for many years. Um, Kimberly and Lori and I and a couple of other women have gotten together um, through a course through the Alexandra Writing Center Society, and we uh, decided after taking the course with Lori, who was our instructor, to um, seriously pursue publishing some of our work, and that was how the book came to be. We're really excited that we were able to pull it off and happy to be sharing it with the public. Through COVID. Yeah, through COVID, yes. 
That is quite a feat. That was actually going to be my next question because when I was reading this introduction, I thought it was very interesting that you guys connected over COVID because I found as a writer personally, um, during COVID, it was harder to connect with others, harder to kind of workshop your work. Most of the classes I took, I found very difficult because it was all over Zoom. So I was actually wondering, how did you kind of connect over COVID and make that happen? What was your process there? We had developed quite a lovely connection between uh, between poets while we were taking in-person classes with Laurie. And we opted, I think we had one in-person meeting and then we were all shut down. We had to go into, we had, to, we had the complete societal shutdown with COVID and we all, you know, retreated into our homes and closed the curtains and locked the doors. And we decided that it would be a fun exercise to try to see if we could do this via via Zoom, thinking of talking of the Zoom platform. And we did. We opted to meet every second week and we wrote poetry and workshop poetry and um, developed a wonderful core understanding of each other's style and just uh, talked at length eventually about how we needed to put a spine on this stuff that we were doing. So it was really, it was a wonderful exercise. It was, and, and for those of us who live alone, it was a it was a a wonderful way to connect with other people every second week as well. Yeah, I can totally see that kind of influence in the book because when I was reading it, I noticed that every writer had a different style and also a different way of almost looking at things. Some of the poems even had to kind of do with COVID and being inside and what that felt like. There was one in particular. Let me find it here. It was a numbered poem about driving and noticing Mm -hmm. as people stopped coming Mm -hmm. and then at first there's all the lights and then slowly as you're driving in the morning there's nobody and i thought that was very interesting because it shows how quickly everything shut down that sharon christie's poem let me just find it here i took i write all over these books so (laughs) as you can see this book is also now (laughs) has a lot of my writing in it as well sharon works at the children's hospital so she's an essential worker and and was required to be out Mm -hmm. so yeah had no choice yeah the poems called calgary march 2020 driving to work at 7 Mm a.m that adds so much interest to the poem knowing that she's an essential worker and that makes so much sense Mm -hmm. um i also worked in a grocery store and so i also saw kind of everybody disappear off the map it was a little spooky um but i thought some of the poems in here totally caught that vibe that was almost apocalyptic but also yeah. like a little bit a little bit ghost story like yeah. enraged taillights stare back again as i drive up the ebony hill there's yeah. something about that that almost sounds like it's from a movie um <laughs> but yeah i think it's very interesting that you guys chose to come together over COVID and kind of use it as motivation in a way, especially because it is called Uncommon Grounds, which I thought was such a cool title considering that it connects to the fact that you're all coming from different grounds and backgrounds, but also that it has to do with coffee grounds. Um, (laughs) um, Was there anything else you'd like to add about that or around that? Uh, Just in terms of the, of the title of the book, we, we, because we came from the espresso poetry writing class that, that uh, Lori had started we opted to call ourselves the Espresso Poetry Collective. So we we really, really felt that the book needed to have a coffee theme. And Uncommon Grounds was a good one for us because we are all so different. Our backgrounds are so different and our styles are so different. Um, so we just, we just brought that coffee theme along and took the photographs as they related to coffee. So those, the photos in the book as well were taken by Linda and, and I. 
And me, I should say. <laughs> the both of you, we can yeah. say. <laughs> me and Linda. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, the photography works really well as well with this because it's very minimalistic. I particularly liked the coffee rings mm-hmm. that kind of have almost that like moonlight look to them or in particular... Um, there was also some coffee grounds that looked almost like an Enzo, if you know that symbol, mm-hmm. the um, yep. the paint symbol. And I thought that was so cool and such a creative way of looking at coffee grounds. I work with coffee, so I was also really excited about this. <laughs> um, so for the photography, did you want to talk about that as well? Was there a process there or were you just kind of having fun with it because coffee is such a fun medium? Well, originally we had considered the possibility of creating a book that could be small, like maybe five by five inches and kind of act like a coaster, a genuine <laughs> coffee, coffee book. Um, we played with all kinds of ideas like that. And Kim and I just on our own, of course, because we were isolated, you know, brewed up some coffee and splashed it around and played with napkins and and paper and then photographed that and sent it to each other and had a little bit of fun with the theme and the idea of um, appealing to people in that other sense, you know, the visual sense as well to complement some of the pictures. Not that the poems have much to do with coffee, but... I think we, we also didn't want the book to be considered too precious, where you could put the book down and open it up and put a coffee mug on it and lift it off and there'd be a coffee ring behind so we want people to read it. We want it to be well-loved and well-read and picked up and read again. Exactly. So we don't want people to think that it's just uh, you know, so special it can't be opened and pages folded over, etc. We want people to read it and read it well. That's a really cool philosophy to have just because I know so many writers personally who are super picky and they don't want, you know, the coffee. And I think it's cool that this is literally a coffee table book because you can put your coffee on it and it adds to the artwork. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. One other thing I could mention that you might have noticed or may not is we didn't have an actual theme that we were working off of, Um, except that I think we all agreed to try to write one poem about writing poetry. So in the book, each author has contributed one poem about the process or about poetry in general. And that kind of was a thing that would tie the whole book together. And one of our members, Sharon, worked hard to try and give it a little bit of flow. So some people might wonder about the order. I think often um, books are put in a put together in a way that one author is featured and then another author is featured. And we decided to just scatter them throughout. But if there was a way to kind of connect one to the next poem, it didn't really matter whose it was. So there is a little bit of a flow to it if you if you look for it. And Sharon worked really hard on the formatting of it as well because this is self-published. So that's the other thing we did in addition to workshopping poems and, and trying to find enough to put together. We published this thing ourselves, formatted it, took the photographs. Which was a process. Yeah, it was a heck of a process. <laughs> I think we finally picked the books up around the second week of June. And my original intention or my belief was that it was going to be ready as Christmas presents. So mm. um, <laughs> we underestimated the amount of effort it takes to do this. But having done it once, yeah. now we feel like, well, if it happens again, it'll be much easier. Mm. 
Absolutely. And I'm excited for the second Uncommon Grounds, personally, because I think it's a cool idea. Um, Self-publishing is actually a very interesting topic. I know people tend to kind of... um, they're either in two camps. They either really like self-publishing and they're all about the zines and the chapbooks and the local literary community, or they tend to kind of shy away from it and embrace it. But I guess my question for you to follow up with that with self-publishing is when you're choosing to self-publish, was it because you wanted the freedom? Was it because you wanted to do it together as a team? Was it because you wanted kind of that local commitment where you could kind of step in and have the leadership roles and was it also because you wanted the learning experience of you know editing and formatting and putting it together because there's a lot you learn when you're doing something like this yes (laughs) (laughs) to to all of the above i think i think it's important to to mention to go back to Lori's um introduction in the book that originally our last class um was set up for us to actually create chapbooks or to get at least started on that process. And um, Kim's that she brought tonight is is a clear example of that coming to fruition. But some of us floundered a little more than others, me being among those people. And um, in the end, we kind of felt pretty proud of ourselves for the work that we had produced during the classes and thought, you know, we need to go a little... Uh, more professional, I think, is the word. We wanted to put a spine on it, as mm-hmm. as has been said. So um, I think that's an, another piece of the process was we hadn't intended originally to do what we wound up doing. It kind of evolved. <laughs> yeah. And we hired, a, we hired a designer to help us with the cleaning up the photographs and placing them on the pages and making sure that all of that looked the way we wanted it to. So a lot of it, a lot of it indeed was about control. We really wanted to we want we wanted to look a specific way and to have a a, a kind of a a specific feel to it as well. That kind of casual open it up, drop a coffee cup on it, you know, that's what we were going for. So Yeah, I totally I work in a coffee shop and um this looks like it would fit right in. This is exactly the kind of book that someone would pick up while having a cup of coffee. I have some copies in my yeah. car, so <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> If you'd like some free advertisement. <laughs> no, this is great. This is actually so so interesting. I'm learning a lot, which is great. That's, that you wouldn't necessarily know just by reading the book. Um, it's cool that you chose to do it all on your own. I think there's a lot of bravery in that and commitment as well. I've noticed that this collection has a lot of feminist themes in it. Did you want to talk about that at all? Sure. There are many reasons that we decided to self-publish. And one of them was definitely as an act of feminism and and feminine power because we wanted as a group of women we're a collective of women and we wanted to come together as a unit and demonstrate to other women and other female collectives that this kind of project can be taken forward um with power and with uh great joy and with this this project brought us so much joy to the, every single woman in this in this collective, and it was it was a wonderful experience um, being able to demonstrate that kind of independence and strength to other women who are writers who may not think they have an opportunity to do something like this. And we dedicated the book actually to um, furthering collaboration between women because we did we definitely see this as a feminist act. We are all feminists, all of us in the collective, obviously. 
and definitely saw this as a feminist act. Some more fierce than others. <laughs> <laughs> some, some very passionate, yes, and fierce. I love that. There are some poems that are definitely fiercely feminist inside, so... Absolutely. I noticed that um, the meditation on becoming mother in particular stood out to me as being very feminist because it's even shaped almost like a pregnant woman's mm-hmm. body, which I thought was so interesting. Um, and it utilizes a lot of B alliteration, which I thought was interesting, too. I was actually going to ask about that, although I know Eulid Price isn't here tonight, correct? Um, I don't know if you wanted to speak about that poem. Definitely, Eulid has a very um, motherly approach to she celebrates the mother um, in many of her poems that she shared with us in the collective at our workshopping sessions and I think you know we encourage each other when there's one that stands out for us as being one that would be good to include in something like this so I I recall that it was a favorite of of the groups and uh, yeah we noted as well the way the um, shape echoes that of a pregnant woman and the fact that she uses the letter B, um, that was definitely intentional on her part. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I noticed a couple of poems actually almost played with space and shape a lot too, like Hourglass by Crystal. That one is kind of shaped like an hourglass and I thought it was so interesting how it kind of tapered off because women are also known to have, you know, quote unquote, the hourglass figure, Mm, right? Correct. So there's a lot of connection with bodies, women's bodies. And I thought that was very cool as this is a body of work, right? By women. So there's kind of that connection there. Were there any particular poems that you'd like to read and explore and maybe chat about? Was there any po- like particular works of yours you'd like to read aloud and then talk about the process a little bit more in depth? Um, I could share one if you'd like. Absolutely. It's called Cirque du Sol. Really, she should not have been surprised to find herself suddenly abandoned on the tightrope, off balance and exposed, no arms outstretched to catch her, no safety net below her spangles made translucent in the glaring spotlight. No one told her to be wary of the bearded clown or the two-faced lady whose smile now mocks and shames her. There were signs, of course, magic tricks, unexplained apparitions forming and melting like faces in a funhouse mirror, distorted and fractured, cutting her off at the knees and trapping her in an endlessly diminishing mask of fear and confusion. A novice, she was not practiced in this world of risk and deception in which truth and trust make her the freak. Now she must feel her way along the razor-thin edge, mute and humiliated, lest she fulfill her fall from grace. What inspired you to write this poem and what was your process like there? Most of the poetry I write um, comes from a personal experience of some sort. And this one happens to um, relate to an incident involving my career and involving um, the interest, the unwanted interest of a person that I was unaware had been manipulating things in the background and that um, stung in a in a very deep level so this came out in the form of a poem um, 
I like the play on words, the Cirque du Soleil. Everybody's familiar with Cirque du Soleil. I hope that's not going to get me in trouble. Definitely was a learning experience um, to be thought of one way when you know that you're not. Well, I think the Me Too movement, which has also inspired um, a poem recently, has you know, provided a lot of women with what I guess you could call fodder for for self-expression, poetry, art, um, because it's a, it's a topic that, especially women of a certain age, like some of us are in this collective, who've, who've um, had to put up with societal regulations, rules, mores over time and not felt like we could speak our truth. And you reach a point in your life where you no longer feel obliged to do that. I think that'll be our next book. <laughs> Speak our truth. So, Kimberly, which poem would you like to read? I'm going to read a poem called The Turn. When once you bruised me with your eager mouth, I traced the outline of your lips on my skin with my fingertips, recalling the passion, the play, the deliberate infliction of memory. You bruise me now, bite me with your assumptions assign motive where none exists, turn the joy of what we had into toxic dust. I catch the icy wind of your indifference in my fingers, bring it to my lips, hope to breathe it into life, and find it reeks of cowardice. That was also an excellent reading with a lot of emphasis on the negative space, with it, which is absolutely great. What inspired that poem and what was your what was your process like there? As most poetry is, um, we take all of it from our personal experiences. And every now and again, uh, we have personal experiences that kind of hit us at a more at a heart level more than others do. And Linda was talking in her poem, and I, the reason I read this is because it it kind of it goes along the same theme as Linda's poem in that, People make assumptions about behavior sometimes, or they make assumptions about things as long as they suit their own narrative. So they, everyone has a story that they want to that they want to bring um, as part of the reality, and so they will they will tell a story that that fits what they think is the truth. And sometimes it's not because they haven't asked enough questions. They haven't bothered to look for any kind of um, clarification or even uh, been courteous enough to um, return a phone call, for instance. So this poem was inspired by that kind of event where there were some assumptions being made about a situation that were not correct and uh, were actually quite cruel. And uh, so I just decided to write it down and get it down. And these things just come to me at three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning and sometimes just whole it's like a, it's like a channeling process almost it's quite fascinating for sure so i guess in a way it's interesting then because both these poems is kind of you declaring or kind of maybe not defending yourself but speaking for yourself right because both of them have to do with external manipulation mm -hmm. or other people making assumptions about what is or mm -hmm. even projecting something onto you projecting a narrative what is so cool about poetry and writing is that, especially if you are self-publishing, you're taking the agency back from that situation. Yeah. And that's what both of these poems are about, is 
regaining our agency and it fits with the with the self-publishing theme as well exactly so to wrap up our conversation um was there anything you'd like to discuss in regards to this project and kind of the effect it has on your community or anything in particular you'd like to add we are doing some fun projects actually uh, later on in the fall we've got uh, in conjunction with um, alberta culture days alexander writers center society awcs is producing a program or an event called in conversation with us um, the collective is going to be interviewed by uh, Dimphney Dronick, who used to host this show, I hear. Yes. Um, yay, yay, Dimphney. <laughs> She's agreed to interview us uh, via Zoom, actually. So uh, that's September 22nd at 7 p.m. through AWCS. And uh, people can, if they're interested in attending, uh, you can go to the Alexandra Writers Center Society website, which is alexandrawriters.org. Uh, and there should be tickets coming up available on that through Eventbrite, I think, uh, coming up shortly. They'll be posted fairly shortly. So we're really looking forward to that. And if anyone is interested in exploring a little bit more about us or our um, goals and future aspirations, we do have a website, um, EspressoPoetryCollective.ca. And we also have a Facebook page under the same name, Espresso Poetry Collective. So you can look for us um, there if you're interested. And if anyone by chance wants to purchase one of our books, we do have them available through Owl's Nest Bookstore and Shelf Life Bookstore. And they sell for $16.99. And on our website or via Facebook. Correct. <laughs> That's great. Well, I absolutely loved reading this poetry anthology, and I'm so glad that I got to chat with you today. I learned so much about kind of your work and your process, and I look forward to future anthologies as well. Um, this was Maddie Robinson chatting with Kimberly Jones and Linda Hatfield on their new anthology, Uncommon Grounds, by the Espresso Poetry Collective. CJSW. No adverbs allowed. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Just hitting record and... So, uh, my name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. Today I'm with Shelley Youngblood of uh, WordFest, and so we're here to talk about the fall lineup. So, welcome, Shelley. Well, thanks so much, Jenny. And so, I guess, tell me about your role at WordFest first. Sure. So, I am, um, I've got kind of a mullet of a title. I am the CEO, which is the business up front and then I'm the creative ringleader which is the party in the back and the fun part is that we get to talk about the creative ringleading aspect which is how we curated 33 online events for fall 2021. All right and I guess uh, uh, you'll be already on your way uh, going through that lineup 
in September. So tell me some of the highlights、uh, for September. We will have launched our fall series, which is called 26 at 26. So, what you've got over the course of the whole fall is 26 of the most electrifying authors. In the world, they're writing across all genres. They're really big names. They're super tasty. And the one that's coming up on the 21st of September is Omar El Akkad and Ian Williams.、Um, Ian, obviously, at one point was the、uh, distinguished writer at the Cal- University of Calgary through the English department. So he's got strong ties. To,、uh, to, to UFC. He was, of course, the Giller Prize winner a couple of years ago. And Omar Al Akkad is a Canadian who lives in the States now, but everyone is talking about Omar. So I'm very excited about that event. And then on the 22nd, the next day, we've got one of our storytelling series. It's called The Way We Talk Animals. And basically, all of these writers have written books in which the protagonist is an animal. So there's Joni Murphy, who's written a book about how animals have taken over New York City. It's kind of dystopian in that kind of Margaret Atwood way, but completely original. Tai Cheng Tom, who I adore,、um, she's written this book that's about the dog Latka that went into space, the first dog in space, and it sounds Utterly heartbreaking, and it is, but it's a children's book, and it's all about enabling children to understand what Latka's、um, motivation was for doing this incredibly brave thing. I just want to burst into tears when I think about it, but I can't wait to hear from Kai. Yeah, Chen. And you'll hear from Kai、uh, Chang Tom later on in this, as part of this uh, uh, broadcast. Oh, I'm so excited、yeah. about that. That's fantastic. Good timing. Um, and then Rachel Yoder has a huge book out in the States right now called Night Bitch. And it's about a woman who wakes up as a dog. And it's basically this incredible book about motherhood. And then the following week, we've got, I think, if, if people were to say who are their favorite writers, a lot of people are going to say Wayne Johnston. And Wayne's new book, he's known for being a humor writer, but this new book is,、uh, I don't know how to put it, it's devastating. Utterly devastating and absolutely worth you listening to, Wayne. Then we've got Ruth Ozeki, who is just the most incredible person as part of 26 at 26 with Genki Ferguson. So you've got a Booker Prize、um, shortlisted author with this 25 year old wonderkind who grew up in Calgary. And then on the 30th of September, we've got、um, probably the most high profile defense attorney in Canada, Marie Heinen. And she's got her memoir coming out. And we have one of the exclusive national conversations with Marie. So as you can tell, it runs the full gamut, all genres, all backgrounds.、Uh, it, it, it's a very, I don't know how to put it. Like, it's. So compelling. And part of what I love about the fact that it's online is that we would never be able to bring you these pairings, never be able to bring you all of these people, particularly in the fourth wave of the pandemic, if we weren't doing it online. And the majority of these shows are free. All right. And I guess tell me about some of the work that went into getting all these amazing authors、uh, to be part of the WordFest this year. Yeah. We've always tried to make sure that whether it's live or online, every author has the absolute best experience 
that we treat them professionally. We have the most creative format for them. And our audiences, we're known nationally for having really great audiences. And so all of those things add up to a stellar reputation. And if you're going to want to bring in the big stars, which we do, whether they're established or emerging, that's how you get them, is you just treat them really well, you showcase them well, and then you present them to the best audiences. All right. And I guess... uh, um and uh, I guess we can talk about uh, the going into October. I'm oh, good. I, I'm really interested in the Eugene Stickland and Tom Thompson. Okay, so Thompson Highway has been. I mean, he's part of Wordfest DNA. Maybe one of our most beloved over our 26 year history. Thompson has been there. Um, his book is. So beautiful. It's a memoir at this stage in his, you know, multidimensional career. And he and Eugene Stickland, so Eugene, of course, is Mr. Calgary. He's, you know, so comprehensively creative, whether it be theater or writing or teaching. I mean, everybody knows Eugene. Well, it turns out he and Thompson work together in theater in Saskatchewan. They have a long, rich history. I'm so glad you pointed out that show. Um, It's going to be on October the 14th. It is free, and I think it's going to be exceptional. Um, The other thing I can tell you in October is we are presenting Chris Hatfield, the astronaut, with his first thriller. It's a novel. And then October 28th, we are doing an exclusive with Jonathan Franzen. So there are some, you know, big heavyweights. But we've also got Casey Platt and Tori Peters. We've got Zoe Whittle and um, a to-be-named author that I'm dying to release, Katharina Vermette and Jail Richardson, Daniel Heath-Justice, uh, Doug Copeland. October is incredible. So if you're, if you're kind of burned out from the civic election, have we got an antidote for you? All right. I guess uh, yeah, it's uh, going to be uh, really interesting and uh, a full gamut of uh, different authors to uh, take in. If you want to know more, yeah. the best way to find out, because we're, um, we're announcing events, we're announcing new shows, there's uh, links to, the, to both Shelf Life and Owl's Nest to be able to buy these books if you want to get them in advance. Uh, if you go to wordfest.com, All of the information is there. And then if you're somebody who likes streaming channels, we've created the world's first literary streaming channel, and it has more than 100 of our online shows available to watch on any screen at any time for the very, very reasonable yearly subscription rate of $38. Okay, um, that was my uh, last question. And thank you very much, uh, Shelly Youngblood, for your time today. Oh, it's always wonderful. I mean, I'm a UFC grad. I, I, everything I probably know about audiences, I got through CJSW. Um, so I'm always really grateful to my alma mater and to Calgary. Thank you. CJSW. No adverbs allowed. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block.
To finish off this episode of Writer's Block, we have a reading by Joanne Fung of her short story, Clutch, originally published in the White Wall Review. Joanne Fung is a UCalgary alumna with two Bachelor of Arts degrees in English and Communication Studies. She currently coordinates a variety of programs and events that serve post-secondary communities and is a creative writer who explores the generational experiences of Chinese Canadians. Without further ado, here is Clutch. Clutch. The wind was fierce at the edge of the Pacific Ocean. I wasn't sure what I expected. Perhaps a quiet calm, a soft breeze that looped around binoculars and played with unwaxed sideburns, like when a castaway rests on his life raft, arms and legs akimbo. But this ocean wind tore my corneas. An overweight man stood beside me in full yellow raincoat regalia, dressed head to toe like an unfashionable Paddington bear. His wife was with him, identically dressed, her binoculars pinned to her eyeballs and scuttling from one side of the boat to the other. The two of them approached me before we boarded, waving their printed tickets and asking, are you sure? We booked Orca Watch, not Whalesome Tours, until my hundred yeses placated them. The couple seemed to find excitement in every empty wave, pointing there, then here, then back again. I didn't expect the ocean to look so desolate. The promised myriad of dolphins and humpbacks were nowhere, replaced by blank, undulating water. If I allowed myself to, I could dream an open eye peering back, the iridescent iris of a giant squid waiting to rear its tentacles round our ship. Look, an albatross! Everyone's binoculars swiveled to where the finger pointed. Percy, that's a seagull. I sat down and the collected salt water in the pool of the plastic seat soaked into my jeans. The other whale watchers lined the edges of the ship, gripping the metal bars with one hand and their hats in the other, clinging hard to prevent the loss of possessions or bodies. It was still early April and every passenger except me was middle-aged and retired set loose from life's responsibilities of children or work to allow for a whale-watching tour on a Tuesday morning. This was my first tour despite living in Vancouver my entire 25 years. When I booked my ticket, I had expected the tourists, the yellow overcoats, the boom of the loudspeaker as the tour guide suggested looking for the crest of a dorsal fin or the unmistakable slap of a humpback tail but I hadn't expected emptiness. My former coworker was the one who suggested going. She was being kind, sending me a text just an hour after I was escorted out of the office. Everyone else didn't bother. The text included suggestions other than booking a whale watching tour. Go out of province. Maybe Calgary is the sunniest city in Canada. Treat yourself to some Richmond egg tarts or pineapple buns, the kind of pastries that soak the paper bag with so much grease, you worry how much grease there's left for your mouth. Try to rekindle old passions. What were my passions anyway? I hadn't texted her back one week later as I sat on a swaying boat, tasting salt. I plucked at my overgrown cuticles and clenched and unclenched my abdomen with the shifting vessel. 
the man in the yellow jacket rose onto his toes, pushing his belly against the boat's metal. How did he get here? A place where you could find the time on a weekday morning to relinquish obligations, dole out the change for a boat ride, with non-guaranteed returns of humpbacks bursting from ocean depths. Perhaps he was a successful investor, a tech giant, a clothing company CEO who exclusively made products for women. At my office, my former office, everyone ventured into one initiative or another. Some were successful and some weren't, but they all carried the instinct of sniffing out opportunities in a metropolis where opportunities seemed too few and too many. Maybe that was why. I shook my head. The sudden involuntary reaction made my stomach turn over itself and my ears burned when I saw a woman give me a double take. Maybe I was too rude to Gregory during lunch that time two months ago. He was reheating macro in the microwave, infusing the office with an odor the city already possessed and didn't require in a cubicle. But the worst part was they did tell me why. HR booked a boardroom, skittered onto my calendar with an innocuous invitation. I should have known. As I sat on the cold plastic seat, I stared at my fingers and wondered when my knuckles became so pronounced, when my skin became so dry that cracks emerged, tiny slivers of blood marking a maze across the back of my hand. Oh my God, there's some, I see them. An arm sleeved in plastic yellow arced high like a beacon across the gray filter of the ocean. Around her, the rest of the passengers leaned against the rails, pitching binoculars to their eyes. I felt the squelch of my jeans as I rose from my seat. Everyone stood shoulder to shoulder with the length of the boat. Small gasps were released. Chatter rose, then fell, then rose again. I wandered to the furthest edge felt the wind claw at my throat, eyed the opaque and clear waters lapping the hull, and looked up. The ocean unfurled as a sleek body torpedoed through the surface waves. I registered more movement behind the first, the rest of the dolphins flickering in and out from view. Okay, folks, looks like there's a pot of them dolphins out there on the port side. Jerry, can we move closer? Maneuvering alongside the dolphin pod, the creatures didn't shy from our vessel. They burst from the depths, one after another in rapid succession, ignoring the thrum of our engine, the chatter of human excitement. Dorsal fins glistened, and someone shouted, Are they going to spin? As I assessed the curve of their stomachs, the graceful bend from their beak to their tail, my eyes rose from the end of their group, and saw the tip of what looked like a black dorsal. My former supervisor was a woman with deep set eyes, hair dark as oil. She had watched as I took my seat, flanked by a man in a ginger suit and a woman in a seafoam pantsuit. Her hands folded in front of her chest, elbows resting on the table, drawing creases against her blouse and brow. The first words out of her mouth were thank you, and the rest was air. Behind the pod and drawing near, 
black fins carved the surface of the water with unnerving uniformity. They cut clean lines, simultaneously breaking waves and coasting currents. Others noticed, and soon our tour guide echoed their observations over the loudspeaker. Five, boy, we sure got lucky today. Keep your eyes wide open, everyone. It isn't every day we get to see dolphins and orcas at the same time. She asked me if I would like a reference letter. It wasn't the least she could do, but it was all she could offer. The man in the ginger suit passed me a sheet and I signed where he pointed. I didn't bother reading the fine print underneath the line of my signature, even though I always did. I spent hours, days underneath a night lamp, reading that fine print, referencing my textbooks, asking my former co-workers. Weeks were etched into my skin, and I think she must have seen it because she caught my eye, held it until I looked away, and retrieved the pen into her enclosed palms. The boat was getting rowdy. Cameras were jostled. Voices rose as they clambered for the best shot. I remained where I was, clenching the handrail, and watched as the black dorsal fins began to rearrange themselves. A formation militaristically and perfectly natural. If the dolphins were aware of the oncoming orcas before, they were now frantic. Flurries of fins, saltwater sprays. I imagined frenetic clicking as the dolphins pleaded with each other to move. Every second, another dolphin would leap, leaving the ocean behind and gasping for air until they plunged back. I can't watch this. It's hard enough on those documentaries. The yellow raincoat man turned away to take a few steps to the seats. His wife caught his arm and hooked it with her elbow. We paid 250 bucks for this. When I stepped into a waiting taxi, I looked up at my former workplace. The windows of the building reflected sunlight and I couldn't see a single face, but I knew. A cardboard box sat in my lap a container of blue pens, a yellow notepad, one three-ring binder, a bottle of hand sanitizer that was technically company property, a few hair elastics, my unopened lunch bag, and a withered plant I bought my first week. When the taxi stopped in front of my apartment building, I went first to the garbage bins and then to my bed. At the edge of the pod, a dolphin flicked its tail and arced across the rippling waters its slender nose directing the ascent. It was either unlucky or slow, perhaps both. In seconds, the body was enveloped by a wide black and white mouth. We were too far to see teeth, but I felt the clutch of their weight. Imagine the strength of the incisors as they caught flesh. Activity erupted among the pod. Sympathy cries came from our audience interweaving with exclamations of awe. I watched the orca hold its prey, relishing its triumph. I, I wondered if the dolphin was still half conscious, marveling at how precisely it had leapt into waiting jaws. We watched until the remains sank to the bottom of the Pacific, watched until the orcas were sated, until the ocean faded from deep darkness to algae green, our tour guide announcing our return. When the boat docked, the still planks beneath my feet 
became an unbalanced threat to my equilibrium, the air stiff against my swaying body. Uh, C? One C. What about a J? 